know, if your car required premium gas and you put crap gas in it, it you know, that's the performance you're going to get. And so if we're wanting to be, you know, great physicians or elite athletes or whatever it is and optimize our performance, what we put in needs to be optimized as well. Welcome to the Emergency Mind podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. We're going to switch things up a bit this episode. Our interviewer is Dr. Andrea Austin, formerly a guest on episode 3 and episode 15. And our guest is Dr. Lisa Deutsch, who is the deputy medical director of NASA's Neutral Buoyancy Lab, an emergency doctor, a nutrition expert, and a truly impressive human being. Dr. Austin will introduce her more in a second, but it's a great conversation diving deep into high-performance nutrition from the point of view of the emergency responder. Before we fully jump in, a quick reminder, if you like what you're hearing here, please give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. Please share us with your friends. And if you're not already, consider signing up for our newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure. It's free and it's awesome. And it covers a lot of the topics that we talk about in the podcast in greater depth, as well as bringing in sources on performance under pressure from a variety of places. You can access it and sign up at emergencymind.com slash sign up. Okay, with all that said, let's get to the episode. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Emergency Mind podcast. I'm Andrea Austin, and I'm a guest host on today's podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Lisa Deutsch. She's the Deputy Medical Director and Undersea Medical Officer of NASA's Neutral Buoyancy Lab and a flight surgeon assigned to Orion. In case you forgot, Orion is a capsule that will be taking astronauts back to the moon. She's also a practicing emergency physician. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you and uh, be on the podcast. And as always on the Emergency Mind podcast, the views and items that we discuss today are personal opinions and do not represent the organizations that we work with. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Great. All right. So, Lisa, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're working now, what you're doing. Yeah, so um, as in my introduction, I am an undersea and emergency physician, and I'm in Houston, Texas. I'm working at the Neutral Buoyancy Lab um, and at Johnson Space Center. Um, we are on call for the um, astronauts training for their spacewalks, and we um, at the Neutral Buoyancy Lab also um, make sure that the divers are healthy to dive and support operations out here. So it's... Um, the day-to-day -day is more occupational medicine um, and keeping our um, kind of elite athletes, so to speak, um, healthy and ready to train and um, get us back to the moon. Wow. That is really interesting. So I've known you since you were in the Navy, and your career has always involved working with people in pretty intense roles, whether it was Navy SEALs and now with astronauts. Can you tell me about what it's been like to work with these elite performers. Yeah, happy to. Um, so I was a, a little background on me. I was a swimmer, distance swimmer growing up. I've been a lifelong athlete. And so I originally got um, interested in human performance that way. I was wanting to be, you know, faster and recover more quickly from my workouts. I think about some of our length uh, and distance of workouts uh, a long time ago, and I could never do it now. But um, so that's sort of how I got interested. And then once I joined the Navy, I knew I wanted to go to dive school. I went to dive school with a six month old. So I had to figure out how to recover um, while uh, taking care of and feeding and keeping up with a very energetic small child. Um, and then once I graduated, I, I found myself working with, um, you know, people who were expected to perform um, in, in really high intensity emergency situations. And um, they needed to optimize their performance and how, how was that? And it wasn't just about the training. And so I got very interested in um, nutrition and sleep and overall wellness. Um, I'm studying for lifestyle medicine boards now because as you know, we don't learn too much about it in medical school, optimizing performance and things like that. And now with my divers and astronauts, um, you know, I, I want to do everything I can to keep them training at the levels that they um, can. Today's focus of the episode is really about nutrition 
And this has become an interest of mine in the last six months as I've experimented with some different nutritional strategies. And I've really noticed that depending on how and what I eat, my cognitive mental performance seems to vary. And as you were mentioning, even though we're both physicians, we don't have a ton of training on this. I mean, I think maybe I had an hour of nutritional education in medical school. And I'm beginning to feel like this is an area that more of us need to focus on. Um, You know, the focus of this podcast is how do we perform better under pressure? And the fuel that we put into our bodies perhaps we should be more deliberate about that. So could you just explain to the audience what your nutritional philosophy is? Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, I started um, really being interested in it about two and a half years ago. Another emergency medicine colleague of mine was starting a company um, uh, promoting kind of whole foods and whole person wellness and um, just was fascinated again and it kind of re-energized my love of medicine and helping people you know finally felt like I could actually help people and not just put band-aids on things or pass pass patients on to surgeons to fix things or you know things like that emergency medicine is amazing but sometimes you know I feel like we don't have the the time or the bandwidth or the resources to really be helping them understand how they got to the emergency department or how their injury is affecting them or, you know, whatever that is. So, you know, um, food literally is medicine. It helps us heal and it helps our body, body's process. It can speed up our brain function. It can um, kind of clear the brain fog or bring the fog in. And I was um, listening to something the other day and they said, you know, if your car required premium gas and you put crap gas in it, it, you know, that's the performance you're going to get. And so if we're wanting to be, you know, great physicians or elite athletes or whatever it is and optimize our performance, what we put in needs to be optimized as well. And unfortunately, our American diets are full of really highly processed, um, really pro-inflammatory and high sugar foods, which are actually working against us. So we may not be hungry, but we're actually overfed, but undernourished. And we're missing some of the key um, nutrients that we need to optimize brain performance and be able to respond to emergencies, whether that's emergency physicians or first responders, or whatever the emergency may be. So let's go through a few different scenarios. And if you could explain how you would take that whole food idea and apply that to somebody looking to change their nutritional intake right now. So in the emergency medicine world, as you're very familiar with, there's a lot of variation in our days. Some days are are super mundane and, you know, nothing is particularly stressful. Other times you have a case come in and you have this intense spike. And for this intermittent spike of intense performance that's required either mentally or physically, what type of nutritional plan would support that for best performance? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the bottom line and what I've learned over the last two and a half years, um, I had every excuse in the book at the beginning. It was going to take too much time or it was going to be expensive or it was going to be, you know, whatever, or the food wasn't going to taste good or it wasn't going to work. And, you know, I think it's getting beyond all those mental blocks and news media and weeding through all the confusing information about nutrition out there and really boils down to a whole food plant full, I don't want to say totally plant-based because I don't think you have to be vegan or vegetarian to get the benefits, but a whole food predominantly plant-based diet. And if you're doing the things that you need to do most of the time, my personal goal is 80%, but you know, whatever that means to you, if you're being healthy most of the time and that's your baseline, then you're ready whether it's predictable or not. So you're ready if it's a surprise or you're ready if you know that you're going in to an emergency situation or some some place that you need to perform. And so um, it's getting plenty of fruits and vegetables, um, minimizing processed foods, which are very inflammatory, minimizing sugar, which is one of the most toxic things we can do to our body, and that includes artificial sweeteners. And really, I'm just, you know, the fewer ingredients on the label and the more nature made, the better rather than human made. 
um, our bodies process whole foods very differently even than vitamins and supplements. And if you're eating a very um, a variety of um, fruits and vegetables and whole foods, you don't even really need them. Now there are, you know, of course, some chronic medical conditions and other things where that, that would be different. But for the most part, for most people, if you can just get on board with eating real food and planning ahead a little bit so that you're not going to the vending machine or eating things that aren't on your plan, um, that you set yourself up for success in any situation. You know, I think what I'm hearing a lot of is there's no easy, quick um, solution. Yeah, I like that because everybody wants a magic pill, right? We want an easy, a quick fix to lose weight or be healthier, this or that. And if, if you really kind of remove some of the mental blocks, it is easy. You know, you stay on the outsides of the grocery store and you're eating things that are recognizable and you don't have to read the label to see what's in it. There's like one ingredient, it's broccoli or it's chicken or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so it, it is easy. I think we make it out to be harder than it needs to be. Um, and some of that is, you know, diet trends over, over our lifetimes and not knowing what to believe or who to listen to. And, I, you know, nobody has all the answers, but you, just, you, you make, try to make healthy choices and then listen to how your body's feeling. That's at least how I operate. So let's talk a little bit about night shifts because that's something you and I both deal with on a frequent basis. And I think what I've struggled with with night shifts is it's really – you're turning your body clock completely upside down and it can be very challenging to make good mm -hmm. decisions and even to really understand like, should I be eating right now? I feel hungry, like the mixed cues that you get with a night shift. So what's your strategy for being healthy with night shifts? Yeah, and it, um, it can be really challenging, especially if you have a long string of night shifts and you're switching back and forth frequently. And I know there's been a lot of work to try to avoid frequent switching, but sometimes you know you just can't help it, um, whether that's in the emergency department or in operational military or you know whatever it is. So um, for me, again, it's just trying to um, have variety and very healthy um, eating habits on a on a daily basis and then I try to keep my schedule pretty regular and so whether I'm um, doing intermittent fasting or whether I'm having three meals a day I try to eat at the same times or um, you know plan ahead for that so I don't necessarily switch if I'm going from days to nights I don't necessarily switch all three of my meals to my awake working time because that doesn't really work for me. Um, so I will try to stick on my meal schedule and keep it the same, whether I'm awake or not. I'll have things at work with me. So kind of the best things to have at work with you are things like um, avocado nuts, healthy, kind of healthy fats, and then um, some fruit for kind of quick energy. Um, I, I tend to not have big, heavy meals. Those make you sleepy. If you have a big, heavy meal, that's cueing your body like rest and digest kind of a thing, right? So all of your blood and all of your energy is going to your stomach to help you digest those foods rather than to your brain to be alert and try to see patients and or whatever it is that you're doing. And so I will have a meal um, before I go in and then I'll have something small with me just in case, you know, I'm, I'm super hungry and can't get past it with tea or water or distraction or if it's just not busy. If it's slow and you're tired, that's the worst, right? Because you're sitting there thinking about food and sleep and all the things that you're not doing. Um, and then I'll have something to eat in the morning. Again, not super heavy carbs or anything like that because that can interfere with sleep. Um, I try not to have too much caffeine in the last few hours of my shift because I want to go home and go to sleep without having to then take something to sleep. You know, kind of want to, you know, um, work with your body's normal regulatory cycles as much as you can. Um, that said, it is very difficult to switch back and forth. <laughs> Right. So I've heard you mention a few times about being, I would say, thoughtful about the way you use carbohydrates. And certainly there's a lot of diet trends out there to avoid carbs and keto is you know, incredibly popular right now. If you had to give a general idea of, okay, you're starting all over with how to eat, what percentage of proteins and carbs um, would you 
recommend. Um, you know, I'm, I grew up with the food pyramid and I still think about that. Am I getting my four to five, you know, fruits and vegetables a day, but kind of starting at the very foundational level, um, what, what do you recommend for people? Yeah, so I think um, vegetables, 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 <laughs> nobody's going to get fat eating, eating vegetables um, as long as you're not dousing them in a bunch of heavy sauces or frying them or things like that. So um, I eat vegetables pretty much every meal. If you're sort of anti um, veggies at breakfast, then, you know, have fruit. But I, I guess um, I am probably like 50% veggies and most of my carbs are from fruits and vegetables. I do a lot of quinoa. Um, I don't, I haven't been counting um, calories or macros or micros or really anything. And, you know, that's been the most eye-opening for me is that I don't think that you have to obsess about um, calories and amounts of things if you are just trying to really eat nature made and predominantly vegetables. And so that's been the fun part, right? Because then you just free up that brain space to think about things that you really need to think about. Um, but, you know, staying out of boxes and bags and packages and then um, getting most of your carbs um, from fruits and vegetables. And then if you're going to do things like breads, then, you know, some of the seed breads are, you know, low sugar, things like that. Um, there's some really great pastas that are, um, are bean and veggie based. There are some, you know, good subs if you're craving, you know, just craving carbs. If you get rid of the sugar, one of the most, one of the coolest things that I found, I think, um, is that my tastes have changed and other things that are supposed to taste sweet do taste sweet. Like, even some vegetables now taste sweet, um, which I didn't think um, was going to be the case. So, you know, if you just allow yourself to try some new things and um, get past being hung up on, oh, I'm going to crave it or, oh, I'm going to miss it or, you know, find other things that you that you crave and that you really enjoy. Um, healthy eating can be delicious and it can be really fun um, if you let it be. Um, but um, I guess I would say like 50% um, veggies and then 25% protein and 25% fat if you wanted to divide up, divide up your plate. So let's pivot to dealing with hunger. And how do you know if you're really hungry? Sure. So um, first of all, sometimes thirst can be misinterpreted as hunger. And even if we feel like we're drinking a lot of water, getting a lot of fluids, we often don't get enough. And we don't, we're not very good at tracking. And um, we don't think necessarily about insensible losses. So if you're exercising, or I live in Houston, it's 100 degrees and 100% humidity, even like standing outside, you're just like losing water. Um, so the first thing I do or tell people to do is try to drink, get some water or some tea, no cream, no sugar, but just like a green tea or black tea, whatever your go-to is, um, and see if the hunger goes away. So maybe maybe we're actually thirsty. Um, we're bad at interpreting those cues. And then the other thing is get up and walk away. So if you're in the kitchen, get out of the kitchen. So if you've made a plan to eat or it's not time to eat or you're just feeling snacky, standing and staring at the food is not going to help help you. <laughs> so get out, go for a walk, walk around the department, go talk to a friend, make a phone call, fold some laundry, like do something to distract yourself. If you're distracted, hunger kind of goes away, you forget about it, then you probably weren't really hungry. You were probably bored or emotional or whatever it was. Um, and then, you know, if you're still hungry, think about, okay, did I eat enough at my last meal? You know, why, why might I be feeling hungry and try to learn your hunger cues? So again, are you stressed out? Are you emotional? Are you sad? Are you bored or you, whatever it is. And then if you're still hungry after all of that, then maybe you, you need to eat. And, um, and then that's fine. Um, a lot of what I do is planning ahead because we're really bad at making um, decisions in real time if we're tired and hungry. So planning ahead and having healthy things with you again, so you don't go make, you know, you don't go to the break room where there's lots of cookies and candy and baked goods all the time, especially in the emergency department um, or vending machines or order a pizza or things like that. I'm not saying never do it, but it, it shouldn't be your kind of go-to. So with that idea about preparing for a shift, and I think right now in emergency medicine and, and other fields as well, COVID-19 is really made things more difficult and complicated. And, you know, now I wear an N95 my entire shift. I found it's very challenging to ensure I'm drinking enough fluids. And 
I'm not really sure like what the best strategy is. Like, should I drink a bunch before I go into my shift or is that counterproductive? So both from a hydration and food point, what do you think the best strategy is when you know that we now have these long stretches where it's actually really hard to take a break and eat or drink? Yeah, especially with the hydration, that's hard because being dehydrated makes us feel very sluggish and tired and it makes us cognitively slower, um, even if we're only mildly um, volume depleted. And so I think, you know, um, drinking a bunch right before you go in probably isn't the best strategy, um, but kind of if you can do it over the course of the day, and that might be hard if you're sleeping during the day and then depending on how much time you have before the start of your shift. But I would say if you can kind of, um, if you can drink periodically through the day and just maintain kind of general hydration, and then, you know, it is a pain to kind of um, take off all your PPE and put it all back on and all the extra hand washing and things that, you know, some people are using straws and other devices where it's a little bit easier and you can kind of finagle it. Um, I don't, I don't know that there's a perfect uh, strategy for that. Or, you know, if you can schedule the time where, you know, you take everything off, you get a quick snack, get some water, go to the bathroom, you know, whatever you need to do and just try to kind of batch, batch breaks like that. But I would say, you know, I would worry less about eating and more about hydration if you're going to pick one. Um, you know, going our shift without eating if you are prepared and your body is fueled ahead of time and you're kind of at that baseline, really great kind of um, fueled state, then um, the fasting during the shift can actually um, improve memory sp speed and brain function and kind of um, make you, um, you know, it, uh, optimize your performance rather than feeling sluggish. I think I think that feeling sluggish, unless you're diabetic or something like that, um, has to do with other things and not being fueled ahead of time. And then rather than actually needing the food for the eight or 12 hours that you're working. So pressing on that idea of hydration, I had heard that one strategy or what we should be shooting for for a goal is your weight in ounces divided by two is the number of um, ounces of fluid you should have a day. But as a physician, you know, that sounds a little weird to me because like you were just saying, it depends on so many things. Like what are you doing? What's the climate that you're working in? So how, I mean, it sounds like to me, you really focus a lot on hydration. So how do you know that you're well hydrated? So this may be the Navy coming out in me, but honestly, like, am I feeling tired? Am I feeling hungry when I shouldn't be? But then like when I, when you're, you're urine, what color is it? And so it should be, you know, clear to light yellow. And if it's starting to get towards dark or definitely towards that tea color, that we talk about with like rhabdo and things like that, then that's not hydrated at all. And so um, that's kind of the easiest um, objective way to tell. Um, also, if you don't have to pee for really long periods of time, like at all don't have to, then that that's not a good thing either. Because if you're hydrated, you should also be urinating regularly. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, in the emergency department, again, a lot of our training was learning to ignore cues. And, you know, I definitely remember eight hour, 10 hour shifts where I didn't have to pee. And yeah. that's not normal and it's not healthy over the long course. So I think it sounds like hydration is definitely a cornerstone um, and probably something all of us could do better. And, you know, something we have to pay more attention to, I think. Um, during this pandemic and making time for these breaks, knowing that our performance, which ultimately for us as emergency physicians, impacts patients. So I think that's something I'm really taking away from today is if nothing else, I'm going to work on my hydration this week. Yeah, it's huge. And I think that we kind of minimize it. I think the other thing too, is that we just push through and just keep, keep, hustling and don't really realize that if we would just take a few breaks and that we would actually be more efficient and we would be faster and we would be um, actually saving time. So we feel like we can't stop. There's patients waiting, there's nurses that need something, there's, you know, whatever's happening. But if we would just take a few minutes, like maybe do a lap around the ER, 
get a little water, actually go to the bathroom and just like breathe for a minute, how much that would um, mitigate kind of our stress and any anxiety that we're having, um, especially in COVID times, it's just a whole nother level. Yeah, that's such a mega pearl there that I've definitely found that the longer I've done emergency medicine, you are more efficient when you take breaks. And a lot of difficult situations that I'm not sure how to navigate when I do take that break, even if it's simply going to the bathroom, usually something will light bulb will flash like, okay, this is how we should address this issue. So I think that's something we have a lot of interns and people early on in their training that listen to this podcast. And, you know, part of being a good emergency physician is being fast, but you have to find a balance. And in order to be fast, you have to have these breaks, which aren't, you know, I think we're taught to feel bad um, about if you take a break. Um, but like you're saying, if you can come back and be more efficient, then that really was a very good use of time. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, we're, it's a badge of honor. If you see the most patients and you do the most and you don't take any breaks and you don't need it and you don't need sleep and you're so busy and all this stuff. And, you know, we've gotten ourselves in a bit of a mental health, uh, pickle about it because we're just expected to go, go, go all the time. And, and we do need breaks for our um, mental, emotional, and physical health. So I want to turn for a minute about if people are interested in making some changes in how they eat and drink, what's your prescription for people as far as like, how much time do you think it takes for once you make a dietary change like that to start to see results? Because you know, I think a lot of us, we want instant results. And so when you make this change and you get your, you know, consumption of vegetables, maybe to 50%, you're doing better on hydration. How do you encourage people to, to stay with it? Like, is this going to be something I'll feel better in three days? Or is this going to be three months? Yeah. Yeah. Most people, it's hard to stick with things for three months. It it just sounds like a long time, even though it's not really, but um, the biggest thing and the biggest change that I noticed is getting rid of sugar and processed food. And I don't have arthritis, but I noticed that even my hands were less swollen, my rings fit differently and things like that. And that was after, you know, less than a week. And so I think if you can make, you know, pick one change a week to make, so it doesn't feel overwhelming and that whole like, small steps lead to big changes or the compound effect. Darren Hardy's book's amazing. Or, you know, CDC had small steps where you park farther away and you walk, you know, you have to walk farther to go in the store or whatever it is. So if you can start with, you know, one thing a week and it's like ditch sugar first and, or if you want to tackle the vegetables first, more vegetables. Um, And then you'll see, you'll start to see changes in seven to 14 days. Um, If you're, you know, kind of mindful of your body and listening to cues and things like that. And I think that's exciting. Um, Some of my um, patients with arthritis, their joints hurt less um, without really having to do much and not having to take a bunch of medicine and not being in pain all the time. And um, I think that can be um, kind of a magical thing for people to realize that it doesn't have to be hard. We have a lot of mental blocks about how hard it is and how it's not going to work because we've tried all these diets in the past and they haven't worked. Um, I also think it's finding something that's a sustainable lifestyle for you. So it's it's not about being a diet. It's just about fueling your body and putting putting what your body needs to heal um, and, and to stress less and to do more because that's what we're expected to do these days. Everybody wants to do all the things. And so um, we have to give ourselves um, the vitamins and minerals, the nutrients, the energy to do that. Um, so, yeah. And then... Um, you know, some of the, like, I, we may talk about intermittent fasting, but you can see changes in, in 14 to 21 days, whether that's insulin resistance or weight loss or, you know, whatever it is. So it doesn't have to be a long time. So when people are making changes, and I know you said you, you personally don't track your calories or your micros or your macros, but if somebody is going to start to make a change, is there any way that you would suggest that they monitor if something's working for them? 
um, what are your metrics or with your clients for, or your athletes and your astronauts, what are your metrics for, okay, let's tweak this part of your diet and let's see, how are we going to measure if that was a good change? Um, a lot of it is subjective. So with my weight loss clients, obviously the scale is one of the metrics. Um, they track, uh, how they're feeling and how they're performing. So, um, divers and astronauts here at the neutral buoyancy lab are in the water a long time. And so if we're tweaking things with them, it's how is your energy? Did you think that tasks were easier today than before? You know, things like that. Um, just in general, how you're feeling, how are you sleeping? It affects how you sleep. So if you have a huge carb meal at night, um, you know, you, you're not going to sleep as well. It can interfere with that. Or if you have caffeine too late in the day, or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so it's not just about the nutrition, but also sleep hygiene and stress management and things like that. Um, the other thing is that um, I, I encourage people to keep kind of a journal and that doesn't have to take a lot of time too, or either. Um, you just write down kind of what you're eating, how much water you got in the day, and then how you're feeling that day. And, and then you can kind of see trends that way um, in terms of energy levels and things like that. Like I felt really sluggish today, or I have this injury and that really hurt today. Um, and then after a week or so, like, okay, you can go back and instead of trying to remember, cause we're really bad at remembering. <laughs> I like that. And that's really exciting to hear that, you know, arthritis and some of the other, um, conditions, as you mentioned, can be improved with what we eat and that we should think about food as medicine. Yeah. I mean, it can not only prevent but also reverse some of the chronic diseases that we're battling every day um, in our health system. And that's been the most amazing thing is that, you know, these, um, a lot of these diseases and diagnoses um, don't have to be, you know, a life sentence. You don't have to be on medication forever. If you're willing to make these other changes, then you can get off your medications and feel better and be more active and kind of live the life you want. But it's getting people to, to make these little changes and, and buy in and, and, be willing to continue them. And, and once you have some momentum, it's really exciting to watch them, you know, change and have these benefits just from food, you know, something that is, you know, of all the things, pretty easy. If you had to recommend one book for somebody that wanted to get smarter about nutrition, what would you recommend? I really like Dr. Gregor's How Not to Die. I also think it's like pretty like in your face with the title. Um, he also has a website, nutritionfacts.org that I really love. I think it breaks it down on a pretty understandable level. So you don't have to be a physician or a scientist or, you know, to get it. Um, there are some others I'm reading um, Genius Foods right now, which is all the um, reasons you should eat um, bright, colorful food full of antioxidants and things that are going to help your brain recover um, and stimulate, uh, you know, brain-derived neurotrophic factors and like kind of nerds out a little bit, but, uh, um, you know, things that actually can um, improve executive function and memory and, and cognitive speed and all the things that you want to really be on point and be on your game when emergencies are, are happening. What are some examples of foods that they recommend in the, the genius? What, what was it? The genius? Um, it's genius foods. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's actually really good. Um, the, I, I will not try to pronounce his name. It's difficult to pronounce, but I can certainly send you, um, send you it so you can put it in show notes or something. But um, his mother got very ill and he was very motivated to figure out if there was anything that they could do other than, than um, pharmaceuticals to help her um, with her diagnosis. And so he really um, did a deep dive into it. And so it's everything from green tea to berries. I do a lot of work with herbs and spices. It not only makes food delicious, but they're super anti-inflammatory. And inflammation and insulin are kind of the two big things that um, interfere with our health and our um in our emergency mind. And so um, turmeric, cayenne, black pepper, garlic, ginger, all super anti-inflammatory and really good for you. And so if you can figure out how to incorporate them into your meals every day, you just get those added health benefits over time. Um, berries are a big one. Dark chocolate, so like the closest to 100% you can get, the better. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so those are the big ones. Um, leafy greens and kind of just bright, colorful foods, pretty much if it, if it looks pretty on your plate and is a natural color, then it's probably going to help you out. 
That's awesome. Good. I'm definitely adding that to my reading list. So if you had to go back in time and tell your younger self about how to improve the way you train or perform, and this is really open-ended. It could be about nutrition. That was the focus today, but it, it could really be anything because you have a huge background as an athlete, a physician, and then this really interesting focus on uh, military personnel and astronauts. Um, so what would you tell your younger self? Yeah, gosh, I love this question because I've been thinking how much I wish I had known a lot of these things or had somebody that was telling me these things when I was younger. And it's like, man, I might have been a much better um, athlete. But <laughs> um, I think sleep is really key. And I think that, you know, it's sort of a badge of honor. Oh, I don't need sleep. I'm going to I stay up all night and do my papers and study for my exams and still go to swim practice or, you know, whatever it is. And just how important sleep is for recovery. Um uh, and and function in general and then um, nutrition wise I think about all the times on training trips and right before big swim meets we would go and carb load and it was like bagels and bread and pasta and things that make you sluggish and I was like oh man I wish I had been um, uh, eating and fueling very differently and the other big thing is um, is mindset and just taking time to breathe meditate be grateful you know reframe things into a more positive manner and kind of get your stress and anxiety on on a different level so that you can perform and just how much um, um, training yourself to to think and feel differently about different circumstances really makes a difference in your whole life and your outlook and kind of your just energy level in general and that's been really eye-opening because you know even 10 years ago in residency i would have been like oh meditation like I'm never going to sit there and like clear my mind and be super Zen. It's just like not me, but meditation doesn't have to be that way. It's not about being thoughtless. It's just about um, being, being mindful and intentional. Do you meditate every day? No, I'm, <laughs> I'm working on scheduling that. I, I try to, before I even touch between my alarm going off and me touching my phone to check my email or scroll through social media or whatever it is, my new morning routine is my alarm goes off and I sit there for five minutes and I think about three things that I'm grateful for and really set the intention for the day. And it's been really helpful. I don't do it every day yet, but that's my goal. I love that because, and that's something as I've gotten older, I don't know what it is, but I used to be when I was younger and I probably when I was working more as a resident, if the alarm went off, I was shooting out of bed because usually, I, you know, flying out the door because we worked so much, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week that, you know, to get that sleep, you were trying to eke out every last second. Um, at least I was. Uh, but now for the most part, I don't have to do that. And I do kind of lay in the bed. And I, that's a really great way, I think, to try to incorporate that into a daily practice, because that's been a hard thing for me to hack. Like I do feel differently when I'm practicing. And I've gone, you know, in, in fits and starts. So, but I really do want to get to that place where it's, it's part of a daily practice. And, you know, I think we focused a lot on nutrition today, but what it kept, you know, coming in is that this is really only one facet. And, you know, you're talking about the mindfulness and the, your physical regimen, all of it really comes together. And so that's just a, a great reminder that, you know, we we're all a work in progress and we have to keep looking at all these different facets. Yeah. I mean, it's all about progress and not perfection. Most of us are very type A and we think that if it's not perfect, that, you know, we, we're, we won't do it or it's not worth doing or we quit because we're afraid of failing or, you know, whatever it is. And, and so it's not about failing or, not failing. It's just about making changes and trying to be better every day, healthier every day. Um, and then yesterday and not about what anybody else is doing, but what you need to do for you to feel good and, and live the life that you want to live. And so the other thing I've been doing is setting a timer. And if I'm going to read the news or scroll through social media or something, I set a timer because and mine is like a max of seven minutes and usually I quit early, but it's just, it's overwhelming to our brains too, to just have nothing but negative stress inducing 
um, input from the external world. And so really realizing like, is this serving me? Do I really need to read the news? Do I really need to scroll through this? What could I be doing that's serving me better? That's giving my brain the fuel, giving my brain the rest, you know, whatever it is um, to, to perform and just, you know, letting go of things that aren't serving you and aren't helping you meet your goals for the day. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier in the interview, and not a lot of people listening probably know what going to dive school was like. I have a very small um, idea. I've you know, had many friends um, that have gone to dive school, and quite frankly, most were men, uh, very few women. Um, are able to uh, complete the program. Um, it's extremely physically demanding. And, and now that I heard you did that um, six months after giving birth, I, I would really like to hear about what that experience was like and how you were able to do it. Because as I mentioned, a lot of women, they, they aren't able to do it. Like the, the strength requirements are so tough <laughs> and you did it after giving birth. I think there's, I mean, that really shows what an athlete uh, you're, I'm just blown away. I mean, even like, even just the abdominal strength people, you know, after giving birth, talk about your rectus abdominis, having that, the gap. And like, I, like, how did you, do that. <laughs> um, thank you for those very kind words. I look back and I honestly, some days I'm not sure. Um, I don't necessarily recommend it as, <laughs> as the go-to way to do, do dive school, but um, the first thing is it literally takes a village. My dive school classmates were amazing um, and very helpful um, <laughs> to me, um, very encouraging with the process, and so were our instructors, and I couldn't have done it without a little bit of understanding, not to say that I had any um, different standards or anything like that, but I did have to take time out to nurse um, during training and, and hydrate a little differently and things like that. So there were a little bit of concessions um, for that when you know we had constant access to our water, you know, things like that. Um, but training wise, I did give myself some time um, to heal, obviously, and then I didn't do a lot of core right off the bat because I didn't want to have a diastasis and then have a bigger problem. Um, I stayed pretty fit during my pregnancy. I was going to a gym and working out. I was doing the biggest thing. I think the challenge for women is pull-ups and we have to do six dead hang pull-ups on their count. And so that's very difficult to do in general for most, for a lot of people, but for women in particular. And so I made sure I was doing pull-ups the whole time I was pregnant, whether that was assisted or with a band just to keep those muscles working. Um, I did a challenge where I did a thousand pull-ups. Gosh. I was probably five months pregnant. I did a challenge where I did a thousand pull-ups over the course of a month or something. And so I just tried to not lose it all. Um, I couldn't run it all later in my pregnancy because I was having a lot of pelvic pain. And then at dive school, I was, I made standards, but I was still probably the slowest runner, but I was the fastest swimmer. And, you know, you just do what you got to do to get through it. Um, my, I think my favorite, one of my favorite memories from dive school is we had to go in on a Sunday and I didn't have childcare. So we put Dylan in a little floaty and he was in the pool and we were finning around him and stuff. And so, you know, just concessions like that and then made for really good memories. And my class had eight women and six graduated that had never been done before. And I don't know, it was just, it was a really great, great challenging time. Wow. I mean, for the people that are listening that are military, you know, I, I think that story is so fascinating and moving because, I mean, we both know as being in the military, there are a lot of issues um, with gender and with equality, and it's not a perfect organization. But that story really highlights how far we've come, that there have been some significant improvements that you really, I mean, you say you had a village and that you had that support um, to go through that. It's, I'm actually, I'm, as somebody who recently got out of the Navy, I'm, I'm almost shocked, but it's, um, it's like the best kind of shocked. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really, really amazing. I mean, just, yeah, <laughs> that's all I can say. It was just really, really great. And, um, says a lot about the organization and the changes. Um, there was a funny sign on the door when I nursed and 
it was like something along the lines of unless there's a fire a hurricane or an active shooter do not touch this door so there was still like a lot of kind of funny things around it but you know they they all were very supportive gosh i'm just trying to think back to that time when you were in dive school and you were breastfeeding how many calories do you think you had to eat? Like, were you just eating all the time? Like I, I, you know, they say I've heard estimates that you burn six to 800 calories a day breastfeeding. And then, I mean, we'll have to put in the show notes, like what your physical um, schedule was at dive school. And I think there's a lot of people that would be interested. uh, Some of our medical students listening about what dive school for physicians looks like, but I'm just trying to think like, what did you eat? Like, how did you do it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I ate a lot. Um, it was, but I, it was also a lot about meal prepping because we were there 12 hours a day. So we had to be there five or six in the morning and we'd have a couple hours of working out, clean up. Then we'd be in class from about nine to three. And then from three to five, we would work out again, at least for the first two thirds of dive school. Um, it was two a days and pretty intense and we weren't really leaving to go, you know, out to eat or anything like that the schedule was pretty tight so um, I did a lot of kind of overnight oats and chia and things that are very um, densely caloric in the morning I I again used a lot of herbs and spices cinnamon and cardamom nutmeg things that are healing and help you recover um, and um, lots of lots of fruit in the morning and then for lunch gosh a lot of nut butter we pretty much had our fridge stocked with like nut butters and um low sugar chocolate milk. Chocolate milk can be a good recovery drink um, and also kind of feel like a treat when the rest of the day necessarily doesn't necessarily feel like a treat. Um, And then dinners, we would do some kind of healthy protein. Thankfully, we had a grill, so we would do steak or chicken or or fish and then just like lots of veggies. I did a lot of quinoa. Quinoa is kind of my go-to. But yeah, yeah, it was a lot. (laughs) I ate a lot. Wow. I'm just still, I'm so blown away by that you were able to do that. And it's such a huge accomplishment. Like anytime I see somebody that's um, gone to dive school, I'm always super, super impressed. But the added part that you had um, is just, it's really inspirational. So I want to go back to something that you brought up earlier about herbs and spices as being really important to your diet and that you use these to recover. And if you're, you know, I grew up in the Midwest and, you know, pepper was considered a a big deal when it was added to a meal. So if you're not really doing a lot of that right now and you were going to the grocery store, what are the top few things you would put on the list? And then how do you use it? in your daily eating? Yeah. So um, fortunately, black pepper is one of the best things for you. So if you were going to just do one, black pepper would be a really good choice. Um, Some of the other anti-inflammatory ones, I think I mentioned earlier, were um, cayenne. If you're not a spicy person, you can do turmeric, which is the, um, it makes curry that bright yellow color. Turmeric is kind of a magic food too for your brain. Um, Garlic and ginger are very good as well. Um, and then for kind of fatigue or kind of mental fatigue and spe- um, specifically cocoa, which has um, magnesium in it, which is really good. Um, mint, sage, um, those are all really good ones. And the good oh, cinnamon is another one of my favorites. It kind of keeps your blood sugar on an even keel and keeps your insulin from spiking. Um, I put lots of things in, like in my yogurt. So I do like a full fat Greek yogurt and I'll add cinnamon and cardamom nutmeg you can put whatever you want and I think it's kind of fun to experiment I also put some seeds in there so seeds are really good my favorite go-to's right now are probably chia hemp flax um, and that's a really easy way to get things I keep things in my office so I kind of have a mini pantry <laughs> or you could do it in your work bag and that way you don't have to prep every day you just have them with you and then you can kind of mix and match and make things interesting that way Um, And then otherwise, I just experiment adding them to my food. So I'll sprinkle um, nutritional yeast, which has B vitamins, which are good for energy and just overall um, mood. I'll sprinkle that on everything. It kind of has a nutty, cheesy flavor, but is vegan in case there's any vegans listening. Um, 
And yeah, I'll just kind of experiment. The other thing is that I think I was iodine deficient because I, I just don't eat table salt. And that's the only, not the only thing it's in, but you know, if you notice your diet trends and you're, you're not getting a variety of food, you may have a deficiency that's causing your craving or causing your fatigue or things like that. And so kind of doing a deeper dive into, okay, like what are some of the things that I might be missing and how can I add those into my diet have been kind of interesting too. How did you address that iodine deficiency? Um, it's funny. My mom actually um, st- found a like a kelp sprinkle. <laughs> it almost looks like fish food. But <laughs> um, she started putting that on some things and she noticed how much better she was feeling. And she's like, oh, I think I had an iodine deficiency. And so I started using it. And I don't think I was you know, terribly deficient or anything like that because it is in other things like um, fish and shrimp and um, the uh, other thing and sushi, you know, in the seaweed wrap, but I started sprinkling it on my food and I, you know, I feel better. So, you know, whether that's a little bit of placebo or a little bit of deficiency, it's healthy. So yeah, it tastes good. And a win is a win. So I, you know, as a physician, if there's a placebo benefit, I'm, I'm all about it. I just want people <laughs> to feel better. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So the other thing I wanted to touch on because it, you hear it, all the time is this idea of intermittent fasting. And I think I had shared with you, I was very reticent to try it because I'm very sensitive to low blood sugar levels. And I've always felt that I do better with um, having something regularly in the tank. So do you think intermittent fasting is something everyone should be doing um, or and what, why would we do it? Because it sounds like torture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, another really great book is um, Dr. Fung and Jimmy Moore did The Complete Guide to Fasting. And they talk a lot about um, the, the reason behind fasting, the history behind fasting, um, the myths of fasting. So we think it just sounds like torture. We're going to go into starvation mode and we're all our muscles going to waste away and we're going to be this like frail, miserable ghost of ourselves. And like, (laughs) I had all the excuses too. And I started doing it actually um, January of this year, uh, kind of in earnest. And I was surprised not only how easy it was after the first couple of days of trying it, but also how good I felt. And it's funny because it dates back to, we learned about Hippocrates and take a Hippocratic oath in medical school. And even he prescribed it. And, And when you're sick, you know, you don't feel you don't, when you're not feeling well, you don't really want to eat. And so that was one of the first kind of prescribed, but not only that, your body kind of tells you not to eat when you're ill. And so that could, you know, because it is healing gives your, it gives your whole body a rest. And so, you know, we wouldn't question anybody about sleep. And so it seems kind of counterintuitive. We would question kind of this whole body rest and giving your system a break. Um, You know, we weren't really designed to do this constant grazing and overfeeding that we're, that we're used to now. And so it's really about um, decreasing insulin and giving your body an insulin break and allowing um, your cells to kind of to reset and to recover and to be able to process the nutrients that you're giving them more efficiently. And then, you know, using some of our energy stores. So the glycogen in our liver or fat cells, you know, you, you can't really get to those, using those fat stores until about, you know, 24 hours. And so we're not almost never going 24 hours without eating on purpose. And so, um, it's really just about, um, you know, it it can actually be healing. It can, um, increase growth hormones. So, you know, maybe a bit of a magical fountain of youth a little bit, you know, some people are, especially athletes for recovery, you know, getting growth hormones hormone from other sources. And so we can naturally boost it. Then I, you know, I think everyone should at least try. Certainly if you're um, pregnant or nursing or a type one diabetic, probably not a good thing to try um, and not a good time to try it. Um, But otherwise I would say, you know, start with something like a 16 hour um, fast where you're, you're eating for eight hours and you're not eating for 16, which is you know, arguably more traditional, you know, back when people had three hour, three meals a day, three squares a day and, you know, better sleep and um, a nine to five, and, you know, things like that. Um, you know, just try it and see how you feel. But there, there are many, many health benefits to doing it. And, you know, the other thing again is, is reframing how you think about it. You know, hunger doesn't 
have to be this torturous thing. We don't like to be uncomfortable and we want to fix it right away. And, you know, if you re if you reframe and think, okay, if this isn't going to escalate, I'm not going to be so hungry that I'm going to, you know, pass out and die in the next like eight hours. Um, you know, it's, it's choosing, um, to not eat, to, to make your body healthier. And so thinking about it in a positive way and a positive change that you're making or something positive that you're trying instead of being like, Oh, this is so miserable. When it's, when's it going to end? I'm going to be hungry forever. You know, I think, I think reframing is, is a big part of it, but I could talk about intermittent fasting forever, but I do think everybody should try it. And it's really, I promise not as hard as you think it's going to be. And right now, how many days a week are you doing intermittent fasting? Um, so I do 16 and eight, I think most days of the week. And I try to throw in one longer day of fasting where I'll, the easiest for me, I'm not very hungry in the morning. Naturally, the easiest for me is to go dinner to dinner. Um, so I'll eat dinner, you know, six or seven o'clock and then I won't eat until the next day at dinner. Now I don't do that if I'm on overnights or, you know, if things are particularly stressful, I try to, you know, cherry pick a day where I think I'll be busy, but not necessarily stressed out and set myself up for success. But, you know, that works if you're getting the nutrition that you need the rest of the time. Um, if you're all over the place, if you're, um, eating less nutrient dense food, then you're going to be hungry. You're going to be miserable. You're going to feel sluggish. Um, so, you know, again, it's about setting yourself up for a success, a little bit of planning and, and just getting in a routine where you are getting a very balanced, um, nutritious diet, you know, most of the time. And that being said, like you can still have things, you can have sparkling water, you can have, you know, green tea or black tea without anything in it. You can have black coffee, water. It doesn't have to be totally devoid of, of flavor or anything, you know, for that whole period of time. So the other thing I've done is just reframe how I think about things like, you know, sometimes it feels like a treat to have seltzer with a little bit of lime squeezed in it. Like it almost feels, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's a fun drink. So, um, or, you know, trying a new tea that tastes delicious. And I know that it's also having some other health benefits or I have a, my favorite right now is a hibiscus tea and it's hot pink and it's like really fun. It looks, <laughs> looks tropical. So. That's great. I think, um, that's, that's again, so many things that we've talked about is about the mindset. And I think what I'm hearing a lot is you have to get your mind right about why you're doing this and what the purpose. And Dan has heard me say many times about, you know, what I drives me is purpose. So when I make a change, what's the why behind it? And I think coming back to that, um, Awesome. Well, we always like to ask, um, what's your challenge for the audience that's listening? What, what would you ask our audience to do uh, based on what we've been talking about today? I think the biggest thing is if you can give up sugar and processed food, and that's all like all added sugar and artificial sweeteners, not sugar and, and fruits and things like that. I'm never going to tell anybody to give up fruit unless you're allergic. But um, if you can give up sugar and processed foods for seven days and don't cheat and just really do it and then let me know how it went and how you feel like think about how you're feeling and if you're sleeping better and if you're less irritable and you know, your cravings will start to change, you know, once it, you'll, you may crave it for the first couple of days, sugar is a perfect drug, it gives you that dopamine hit and you feel amazing and then you crash and then you need more but then you need more and more and more to feel the same level of amazing. And so find other ways to get those happy neurotransmitters, get um, dopamine and serotonin bumps from even things like task completion. Like how good does it feel when you turn in a project or you finish an exam and you're getting those same feelings that you don't necessarily need to get from food. And so kind of take the emotionality out of it. But, you know, I, I really think if you give it a try that you'll find that you, you feel a lot better and those, um, those uh, cravings will go away and then you can pick, pick the next change to make for the next week. I love it. It's, it's what we talk about on this podcast all the time is to really be an, a great athlete, a great physician, whatever your craft is, you have to keep picking something and moving the goalpost a little bit um, each, each week. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. 
Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at The Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.